Okay, so welcome to the um, another episode of Games Industry Law Summit's community podcast. And today joining me from Hamburg are Tobias Shalinski and Peter Evert. Can you guys introduce yourselves briefly and where you come from and what do you do? Toby, you want to go first? Sure. Very polite. I have two very polite <laughs> people today. That doesn't happen a lot. Jan Peter, please start. Okay, okay, I, I will start. So my, my name is Tobias Shilinski. I'm a partner at the Taylor Wessing office here in Hamburg. And uh, so I've been working with Taylor Wessing for 15 years now. And uh, one of the things I do is taking care for uh, companies from the video games industries, mainly focused on uh, tech law, including uh, contracts, negotiations, litigation, and uh, privacy, and from time to time, some e-commerce related work. Uh, I was, uh, I'm still playing lots of lots of video games if my kids allow me to, but I started playing games when I was 10, so which means 34 years ago. And I still love playing video games. Um, and I really enjoyed uh, the LucasArts and LucasFilm games when I was young and spent all my money uh, for these <laughs> video games. So you're with Taylor Wessing for how long? 15 years now. 15 years. And that's been like, did you work at different law firms before or what did you do? I was a kind of paralegal for five years in a small boutique. Um, but that was when I wasn't qualified as a real lawyer and during my PhD time. So my, my real career started with Taylor Wessing 15 years ago. Okay. Okay. And Jan Peter, you're based also in Hamburg or around Hamburg. That's true. Uh, actually, right now I'm in the center of Hamburg in Valve GmbH's office. Um, yeah, I have been working for Valve since 2013. Valve doesn't really have job titles, but since I was hired from previously being Valve's outside German legal counsel, that kind of gives you an idea of what uh, like my, my core role is, I guess. Uh, so I, I look after a bunch of our European compliance contracts, uh, but I also do, since most of our operations are international, I do uh, a lot of our esports work uh, and I do some litigation. And prior to Valve, you've been at a law firm or in-house? No, I was uh, outside counsel, so I worked at a boutique IP and um, I want to say uh, advertising focused firm. So uh, I come from a little bit different background than Tobias, but uh, we've known each other quite a while back to the days when we uh, played those LucasArts adventures. That were paid for by Tobias pocket money. Okay, cool. So the first, the first, first things first, I mean, we'll, we'll go over a number of topics today, but the first thing is, uh, what's the deal with the German law firms? Uh, there is this, uh, uh, there's a take that the serious German law firms are big law firms because that's where you get training, that's where you get access to all the sort of resources, <laughs> the big projects and so on. I cannot even like say who mentioned this to me, but uh, it's just that this thought that is persistent in my mind. And when I look at the German law firms, I know most of them are pretty huge, like 100 lawyers or more. Is this like true or not? Uh, to be as you may be a little bit biased working at a large law firm, but how do you see this for the games industry specifically? Do you know any small law firms in the games industry that will be successful in Germany? I know a couple of smaller law firms in Germany that are quite successful in the video games industry. Um, but my, my feeling is that, I'm, in fact, I'm really, really um, 
very, very uh, sure about this, is that you get certainly a good or can get a good training in a boutique law firm uh, for a particular area. So, for example, if you have a boutique law firm that deals with employment law, then uh, this law firm more or less will give you as a, as a, as a rookie a good training on employment law. So what where I think is uh, the, the big, big, big benefit of larger law firms, of full service law firms, is that the lawyers get also a, a certain taste of other fields of law. For example, um, me as a tech lawyer, I, I'm, I'm dealing with cut law issues, I'm dealing with employment law issues, with corporate law issues. And uh, always to a certain extent, but at least I know where um, where these uh, issues may be relevant. And then I can easily involve colleagues from other departments. Whereas if you are only working in a particular field of law, like employment law, you will certainly miss um, some other issues that can become relevant for a certain matter because you are not you're not trained to um, have a look at these issues. Okay, so what you're saying is that there's, for example, there's one law firm coming to the summit uh, this year, whenever it happens, that uh, where a lawyer quit a larger law firm to set up uh, an esports focused law firm, just that, nothing else. And that seems like a very narrow topic. On the other hand, it deals with a lot of issues outside of just like what is esports? You know, there's very little esports law. So. Uh, but I guess it makes it pretty easy to remain focused just on this issue and to build up the practice and to uh, you know understand your clients better and so on. But uh, what you're saying is that as a part of a bigger law firm, you have this huge horizon. And as games touch on everything, and especially internationally, you're able to uh, draw on the expertise of your colleagues. And, and Jan-Peter, for you, is this also true? Like you come from a boutique firm, like how big is boutique? Uh, in my case, when I worked there, it was 13 partners. So mm. it was not tiny, tiny, but it was uh, big enough that you had a bunch of uh, significant clients who looked for a specific kind of expertise taking us seriously, uh, but also small enough that you could build a network of outside firms uh, who trusted that you wouldn't take away the you know, antitrust uh, cases or uh, the M&A cases because if they work together with you and then assigned uh, or recommended their clients to work with you on your specific area of expertise, you would work on that and not poach that client away from that lawyer. So in a way, I mean, I, I agree with Tobias that uh, the lawyers and big firms have the advantage of having these, you know, corporate retreats and knowing all these uh, guys from uh, around the law firm from different fields of law. Uh, personally and knowing who they can uh, represent and uh, or, uh, trust and, and recommend. Um, so in a smaller law firm, you have to work to offset that by having your network. And I mean, for the firm that I worked in, we, we set up an international uh, network called World IT Lawyers, which had uh, partner firms across the world. And you'd meet once a year and uh, have drinks, look each other into the eye and have a, a sense of what kind of person you actually deal with. And I feel uh, these kinds of personal relationships are uh, super important in uh, the kind of services we're supposed to provide. It, it's, it's a bit similar to this ongoing discussion, the evergreen discussion about localization. You want to work with a specific translator because you've got commitment, you've got total skin in the game of the guy because that game goes on his uh, resume. 
but you also maybe want to work with an agency that is able to tell you, hey, that's not going to work in Japanese. Hey, that's a problem for Korean. So you kind of, it'll be great to work with a large localization agency that is very reliable and responsible, but the reality is it doesn't exist. So you still end up going back to like individual agencies or smaller uh, translation outfits because then you get the attention, then you get the care. And uh, I guess everyone's dream is to be able to offer this personal service on a large scale, but uh, very few uh, firms in localization, or I guess very few legal law firms uh, uh, make it happen. Like if you work with a large law firm and they say we have an office in this country, you go to meet that office and it's almost like it's a different law firm. They don't really care about you that much. Like, I don't know, it's just that experience with huge law firms that there is more connection between different firms than between different offices of the same global firm. I wouldn't even say that you need to go to another country. I mean, sometimes the Frankfurt office can be entirely different from the Hamburg office. And in some cases, different practice group within one office can be completely different personalities. And I mean, I think the the underlying premise, like how do you hire a good law firm is not one that I would even subscribe to. I think uh, <laughs> I, I don't hire law firms. I hire individual lawyers and uh, I, I go by recommendations. And with the lawyers that I've worked with for a while, a good quality of them, and I include Tobias on this, is that uh, even if they have a office in some territory for something, that uh, he will still give me his unbiased or at least somewhat unbiased <laughs> feedback on uh, whether they're as good for a specific topic as if I asked him for a specific uh, topic in his area of expertise and territory. So that brings us to the next question. And the question is, how do you how do you even hire a good law firm? Uh, we had this uh, uh, pointless discussion at one point that we said, let's ask every in-game, an in-house counsel at a game studio to recommend uh, a lawyer or lawyers or law firms uh, that they are happy with. And so we can build up sort of a community recommendation list. And then we ended up with uh, one person saying, well, this law firm is shit and this law firm is great. And I was about the same law firm and the same person. <laughs> so uh, I remember, I think Tobias, you were on the call and we had people from different uh, pretty huge game studios. And then one person said, well, that lawyer is horrible. And the other guy said, we just finished the deal and he was amazing. So uh, we gave up on that. Like, it's Maybe very you spent too much time on that deal and didn't have enough time for the other client. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe we should, uh, Sergei, maybe we should have uh, a list um, of, of us law firms saying which is the perfect client, actually. So, so yeah, here's, yeah. here's a question for you. Like, basically, there's one studio that attends the summit, and that studio worked with a lawyer who also attends the summit. And one year, I think it was 2018, I asked the studio about the lawyer, and they say, well, this lawyer is expensive and horrible, and... Like, I don't know, like, we, we don't know a better lawyer, but uh, we're not happy. And then one year later, I asked them how they're doing, and they say, well, lawyer is brilliant. Everything's sorted up, everything is structured, everything's great, we couldn't be happier. So same client, same law firm, just stayed locked in the relationship for a year, and gradually, you know, the client maybe understands the benefits of this lawyer. I don't know, I don't know what changed. But yeah, so the question is like, how do you choose a law firm? Uh, for example, Jan-Peter, you're in the position at Valve where 
I think you can hire any law firm that you want. Like, it's not a smaller studio that has a, oh, you know, we have to squeeze into the budget and so on. So, so that puts a lot of responsibility on you. Like, why would you choose a specific person over everyone else in this country? How, how do you go around it? Like recommendations? Again, or? I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, first step is always recommendations. And I mean, the, the second step in, in cases that are important enough, we might uh, have a series of phone interviews and just have a conversation with them over how they structure their teams, how they think about working with clients. And then, I mean, the personal recommendations will uh, bring up a list of maybe three people we want to work with and then we have individual calls with them get a sense for how they tick uh how their english is um these kinds of things and uh then select the remaining one do you feel benefits from 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 saying hey i, I work at valve like first of all do do law firms generally recognize the name and second of all is there any point where you wished you could say ah but it's a german games company it doesn't matter the, what the name is let's talk about your services or like is it is it a help or is it a, a hindrance because people start to maybe pitch harder and outdo themselves and maybe not really deliver later on it's it's hard to to generalize i guess i mean i've, I've certainly had lawyers who are all about hey i've played csgo for years um but in general it valve is not a household name if you are playing pc games or if you're involved in the industry you know steam and you know uh valve but uh if you're not associated with pc games in specific uh, or have a kid who does you don't know valve we don't advertise we're not generally known um it's still for me the case that when i go to legal conferences that are not game specific that people will recognize valve only if i uh, point them to the supreme court case that it was about us i think i think uh, so jan peter there might be a difference if you talk if you choose a, a law firm for daily work like small matters that you that you can answer within half an hour an hour two hours or if you have like this real big cases where you, you choose the law firm like you just described. So Tobias, for you, what is a good client? Because we, 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 we keep talking about, uh, uh, you know, the clients hold the budgets, they hold the key, they choose. So, so it could give the sense of, uh, uh, you know, clients being entitled and then I hire your law firm. So you go and do the job and, you know, work hard and then I give you more business. But um, one of the friends, that, the common friends that you guys know, uh, who couldn't come to our last uh, meeting, but you know whom I'm in, he was saying, hey, you know what, recently we started firing clients because we have too much work. We cannot do all this work. And then we looked at certain clients and we said, well, uh, it's very, very stressful. So uh, could you just find a different law firm for next year? So. Are you like, is this a thing? Would you would you fire a client or would you like, I don't know, try to get away from a client at Taylor Vessing or just hand them over to your uh, unwanted office? So <laughs> so me, me personally, I fired three clients already. Oh. But that was that was because we had certain agreements, very clear and uh, after everything was uh, fine, done, provided, whatever, uh, they st simply started arguing about uh, these fee arrangements. So in fact, they were lump sum fee arrangements, so there was nothing to, to discuss about. Um, but these were smaller companies, mid-sized companies, and without uh, any experience how to deal with external service providers. So and then I just told them in a very friendly way, so 
maybe um, <laughs> maybe um, what we can what we can offer and what we agreed on is not something that you uh, need for the future. And maybe you should use another law firm instead, because if you have an agreement which says you pay X, Y, Z euros, and then uh, you need to stay, stick to the agreement. Um, but that was actually, so the last client I fired was like seven or, uh, seven or eight years ago. Since then, uh, usually uh, clients come and stay with us, fortunately. Um, and Sergey, to answer your question, so what is a good client? So is, if, I, if I was a political correct uh, person, I would say, of course, every client is a good client. Um, but as you know, I'm not, I'm not a politically uh, correct person. So, um, so, but I would say if I can, and if I can, had to choose between uh, several clients and had for the same uh, amount of time, and, and, I, and I really have to choose between these clients, I would probably um, go look for uh, the, my, my contact person. So if this contact person um, is well organized, this, which is very important, um, is this contract as this contact person um, really involved in the daily business of the client and knows the business model knows the different sta uh, stakeholders and knows um, some certain uh, internal policies and guidances that are important uh, for this particular issue so um, what is what is really um, giving us hard time if, if, a, if a contact person, so it may be in-house counsel, maybe an, uh, someone uh, from a business development team uh, simply does not know anything about this uh, current issue and then has to come back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. This is something that can give us hard time in particular if you agree to a certain uh, lump sum. Other than that, uh, of course, as every service provider, you really appreciate if the, if the clients uh, value your work. Uh, in particular if it comes to um, work on short notice uh, or something that is urgent. And what is also uh, giving us hard times uh, is matters that are regarded as urgent, although they are not urgent. So, um, on the, so this is why we appreciate if, if clients really know Usually, it's the exp more experienced persons that we talk uh, that we talk with. The clients really know what is imp what is urgent, what is important, or what can can wait for uh, two or three days instead of um, being subject to a night shift. Okay, okay. So going going to this side on the in-house consoles, uh, how do you? So you explain from the side of the law firm that you'd like to work with an organized person, the person that doesn't make unnecessary drama, uh, the person who. Uh, doesn't let's say on Monday demand a response on Tuesday and then they disappear for a week because they don't treat themselves to the same standard as they treat you. So yada yada yada. But uh, in in general, for a game studio, what is a good in-house counsel, uh, especially for a studio that doesn't have other lawyers? So you are able to look at other lawyers and say, you know, I can see that he's good or that she's good or that he's not good. But a game studio, you know, they make art, they, 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 they uh, do community management, they write code. How do they know that the lawyer is a good one, the in-house lawyer, especially if the things don't go to the court? You know, you do a shitty contract, uh, then there is a dispute, maybe business development can settle, uh, there's no need to go to court, and then maybe if you go to court, it's five years later, or as one of our friends is now in court uh, on a case which is seven years old. So that lawyer is already gone out of the system. So there's no responsibility. There's no like connection between the work you do and then whether or not it blows up. So how do you, in this situation, how do you measure the in-house counsel? 
I think those were at least three different questions lumped into one. Uh, <laughs> let's maybe let's maybe break down first into uh, what makes a good in-house counsel and how do you value or evaluate the quality of an in-house counsel, which I think are two different things. Um, so I think what, what makes a good in-house counsel is a good part mirrored by what uh, Tobias said before. And I mean, having been an outside counsel and working with in-house counsel, certainly uh, I, I can subscribe to a lot of what he said. I mean, I've, I've fired only two clients uh, in my time as an outside counsel, but uh, it, it happens and uh, for, for somewhat comparable reasons. Um, within, the, within a game studio, if you're a lawyer, you're essentially a humanities guys thrown to the science guys. So uh, you say uh, games, studios, they make art. I agree with that. But a lot of the people that make the decisions and that develop things, they're software engineers. They're not necessarily designers. And they like quantifiable risk analysis and they like uh, specific numbers to guide their uh, decision making. They like a data-driven, evidence-driven approach. And that does not always work with law. Uh, a lot of law, both compliance work, uh, contract work, litigation, it's messy, it's interpersonal. It, um, it means dealing with fuzzy subjects, with uncertain definitions, with rules made by people who have not fully understood uh, the technology that they wrote the rules for, let alone the technology that will be in place 10 years from when the rules were written, let alone the technology that will that is in place 100 years after the rules were written, which is what we have had to deal with for a good part of our careers. Um, and so we are, as a, as a good in-house counsel, I think a, a, a big part of it is being a cultural translator and just making uh, the engineers understand, hey, this is why this is why I make this judgment call. And uh, I don't want to make a top-down decision. Hey, this is what the law says. You have to do the following. Uh, I want to understand, I want them to understand that a good part of the uh, judgment calls that we have to make, and we, we have to because there are very few absolutes in, in, the, in, the, in the laws that we have. Uh, they have consequences, and the same goes for contract work. Like, uh, I can do a 100-page, absolutely watertight contract, which will then, if I'm lucky, take half a year uh, to sign. But I can also uh, agree with my stakeholders in the company that I will go for an 80-20 principle, where I address 80% of the likely problems and the other 20 percent uh, i'll just take care of by having a short termination notice and if we're unhappy with the whole thing we just walk away from it and so there's there's always trade-offs to be made and i think uh, a good part of uh, what makes a good in-house lawyer is uh, getting your peers on board with uh, those fuzzy non-data driven judgment calls and it's really hard to evaluate that. Like you cannot say, well, we have not been sued for five years. <laughs> and so that means uh, there is a certain bonus uh, stage uh, that is being triggered. Um, there is, I think, value to having uh, a certain peer review uh, process where your, uh, 
for your coworkers, essentially say how happy are they uh, working with you. And then hopefully you are not the only person who thinks about these things. Hopefully as a lawyer, you still have someone on the board of directors on board, or uh, I mean, somebody will probably have made the decision to hire you. I, I, I hope that uh, they uh, keep in mind why they did so when they make uh, compensation decisions. So I think what is very important is uh, the job description of a particular in-house lawyer. And this job description also depends on the size of the games company. So if you have a smaller uh, video games company with maybe one or two in-house people, then these in-house people are more or less um, legal managers. So they, they are the ones that um, get well, they, they are more or less bothered with everything that seems to be a legal problem. Although very often it's not a legal problem at all. Um, and they have to deal and organize these legal problems, um, not by, very often not by solving the, the problems uh, themselves, but uh, by using external advisors to help them solve the problem. So they are more or less a, a channel of legal advice. And so they can they can say this is important, this is not important. Uh, maybe there is an there is an issue. So, for example, privacy is is, is uh, very important. Very often, uh, first thing this uh, in-house lawyer discovers when starts at a at the first in-house lawyer maybe in a video games company. Oh, there is a, we have a privacy issue because no one ever has uh, taken care for privacy before. So that but very often these lawyers will not work on how to implement GDPR or CCPA, but they will just uh, be the, the stakeholder or the manager to implement GDPR with the support of someone um, from outside. So this is a totally different role and uh, compared to a large uh, video games company where you have more than 10 uh, in-house uh, people or even more where there is um, where these people are really drafting contracts um, taking care for um, internal clients and work very similar um, to an outside counsel. So if you have, in order to answer your question, how to, how to evaluate the performance of an in-house counsel. So it is by far easier to evaluate as someone who's working um, in a small in-house team, um, because then it's, it's response time, it's business, um, a business-minded approach, it's uh, industry knowledge, um, communication skills like Jan-Peter uh, mentioned, uh, but very often due to the job description, it's not legal work in its very own meaning. This is something you cannot evaluate if you have such a job description because you are not challenged on this, on this level. Uh, so what, what you're saying, I mean, what both of you are saying is, is uh, pretty similar to what we have right now in, the, uh, uh, in how the world deals with the pandemics, uh, where some countries say we'd like evidence-based approach, and let's take Sweden, for example. So Sweden says we'd like evidence-based approach. We're a very progressive nation. So there's no evidence that face masks work. And then you've got Taiwan and Hong Kong, and they say, hey, we've dealt with SARS 10 years ago. Like, literally, face masks are the cornerstone of our approach. So you have the press conference of someone from CDC in Taiwan. Everyone is wearing a mask. Everyone is like sit there and they say like, okay, yes, tracing this, 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 but face masks, public policy of everyone wearing a face mask is the cornerstone to why we have such great result. And then you look at the press conference in Sweden and there's no one in the face mask and they say, there's no evidence. We, we don't really know. And then let's say Finland, so you take the mayor of Helsinki and the mayor of Helsinki used to say at one point, there's no 
evidence that the closure of school uh, has an impact on the spread of the virus. And then literally on the same day, there is a French research being published where they gave every kid in the school an RFID uh, data token. And then they traced over the two weeks uh, how many other kids each kid has seen and for how long. And the result is that on average, uh, an early school kid has exposure to 47 different kids in one day. Uh, exposure meaning five minutes and more. But since that exists in different countries, uh, you know, you have those engineers saying there's no evidence, there's no evidence. So by, by definition, uh, if an engineer is uh, hiring a lawyer, uh, you know, what, what is the evidence of a bad contract? Is it claim? Is it going to court? Is it even losing in court? Because maybe you go to court, but you hire a good law firm and you win the case. And so there is no evidence that the contract was, uh, you know, a mess. It's very hard. I, I, and then, yeah, translating things for engineers that are unmeasurable, that, that are preventable, that didn't happen, that's, that's a pretty hard sell that you say, hey, you know, I'm here uh, in order for this not to happen. But how do you know it can even happen? Like, are you trying to scare me or tell me some horror stories that we could get sued for trademark infringement, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's like an internal sort of sales job. And um, when, when you mentioned that you have different exposure to, uh, uh, to decision-making and to the responsibility in the company, um, I remember that some, some lawyers who attend the summit, they are a part of the board. Uh, I think Canon um, was discussing last year that he's involved in pretty much every major decision now at Epic Games. And that struck me as something very responsible on their approach that you've got a, a legal person involved in the decision. But a lot of companies, they would not have anyone legal on board and <clears throat> they would just have them report to, I don't know, finance or something. Like in your experience, do you know a lot of uh, general counsels who are part of the board or they generally report to someone else who is then on the board? Yeah, the larger ones usually have um, have a general counsel that is reporting to the board, so they are on senior vice president level. And for example, our dear friend Tobias Ha was member of the board of Gameforge for a long time. Um, so it might, it might again may depend on the size of the of the company, but um, I absolutely absolutely agree with you. Um, it makes a lot of sense to, to um, be close to the board um, as a general counsel because there are simply uh, legal risks or legal implications that um, have, a, 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 have, a, have a, a very heavy impact on uh, the business model. So, and to have a short, to have a um, short line of communication, um, I think this is very, very important. It doesn't need to be a board member, but very close to the board. Yeah, I would second that. So, so basically, if you're a public company, then of course, any legal issue or any legal risk blowing up that will uh, materially affect the, the the share price, and then you know everyone has to be involved. So you would want to prevent that from happening rather than have to deal with this as it already occurs. Uh, but there, there is a, like two different approaches in dealing with the risk. One approach is that you have to look at the uh, average expected outcome and let's say on average are you like do you expect to be hit by a car 
or a train if you Tobias drive from your house to your office. It's a short if drive. If Tobias drives, then I expect <laughs> to be hit by a car. <laughs> just just to, to, to explain to those who never uh, drove with Tobias in Hamburg before, uh, he used to own for years and like, for what, like almost 20 years this little car without the roof uh with a very loud heavy metal music blaring i was in this car and it was i think it was like minus seven in the winter <laughs> and tobias was like great weather yeah let's let's turn up the music and then you just sort of look for the seat belt immediately but in generally like you know <laughs> maybe you you don't expect to be hit by a truck so you don't really look at the Uh, airbags in in a new car that you buy it's more important for you to have a big trunk but then a different approach is that as a public uh, safety measure or if you work in a large company then the measure of safety for your company forget about the average or the median think about the extremes so what is the extreme that may happen you may lose your ip or a co-founder will quit the company and take the source code and will you know launch a different competing game So you have to look at this. Like, do you do you like in your in your approach to to games industry? Do you more think about the extremes, or the experience taught you that doesn't really happen that often, and it's more uh, uh, it is more sensible just to look at the average expected and then move on? I definitely look at the extremes. Like that is the stuff that you need to cover in your agreements. I mean, the the small scale stuff. I mean, okay, this this is obviously biased by valves size um but if you have a, a small size agreement and the relationship goes sideways then you walk away from it it may be that you're unhappy that you lost a little bit of money but in the grand scheme of things uh if you make your agreement so watertight that this kind of thing doesn't happen then people will not sign up for the agreements in the first place and i think a, a good agreement uh the first thing Uh, that makes up a good agreement is people are actually willing to sign it. And uh, so what I really focus on in my agreements are the extreme cases. Like, is there anything in there that would be world-alteringly bad if it happened? Like, is there something that uh, if this relationship really went sour, this could seriously affect our business or... Uh, in our case, in some cases, even other people's businesses. And so those, like, I, I'm very much looking for the black swan events. I'm, I'm not so much uh, worried about uh, missing a month of royalties. Um, I like to um, I like to agree, but uh, I want I would like to add, so the, the I think a good agreement makes it a good agreement, not only if it's signed by the parties, a good agreement, it has a good preamble, actually, where the business case and the relationship of the parties is set out very clearly and just a couple of sentences that you that you uh, summarize the understanding of the parties and because in my experience very very often it turns out uh, when there is a dispute that the uh, that the understanding of the parties uh, was simply not there when they uh, finally signed the agreement so it's some sort of a storyline where you know we're just on a side note and an off topic but uh Just for fun, we, we are suing the uh, uh, property developers <laughs> of the uh, uh, building. Yeah, where a we, weird uh, idea of fun. Yeah, bought the office uh, just because they had some defects and they didn't want to fix them. And we thought, let's uh, see how the Lithuanian court system works. 
So that's been a, a year and three months now. Uh, we've been on several sessions on the court and uh, uh, you know, the quarantine made it more fun and so on. And even in the small matter of whether or not they agreed to fix certain thing, everyone forgets everything. So you have to dig up the emails and then bring the emails and say, well, you actually wrote this to me. And they're like, did I? Like, yeah, I saved all the emails. And like, oh, okay, well, uh, you know. So I totally agree with you. Like the storyline element of opening the agreement with the explanation of what the part is, like why you're making this, it'll help you a long way, like a few years later. But uh, all right, so, so for uh, the- uh, Sergey, you touched a very, very important point. Email I... lives forever. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, so my, yeah, the internet doesn't forget anything. No, but but I, if if I if I'm allowed to give an advice here in this podcast, so my advice will be as an external counsel who sometimes is at court, uh, then dealing with large matters, is a good games company, a good in-house counsel should keep all the documents, all the emails of all the big projects he or she was working on, all the important matters. So I'm not so scared about. And I'm not so, so much interested in small matters like the daily work, but if you have the like your real big deals, then uh, it's absolutely important to have um, good records of all emails, all documentations, all um, side notes or whatever, because if it then comes at, uh, to a court dispute and you don't have a proper documentation, that it can give the outside counsel and the in-house people a very, very hard and expensive uh, time. I mean, I can give a different advice to that. I mean, not not the different from your, but just the totally unrelated advice that uh, when you litigate and you go to court, uh, it doesn't really matter who the other lawyer is, because uh, they could be a very bad person or a very good person, but you have to look at the results. We <laughs> had a law, like a legal case where the opposite counsel was a total asshole. Like literally everyone agreed, including the judge. And then he won. <laughs> I'm shocked. Because, you know, he was better. He was better. And and he, at, at that moment, like everyone on our side was saying, "Well, this guy is an idiot. Like, how can he? He's so so like I would go like totally like rubbing everyone the wrong way. Definitely, we're gonna win. And then uh, you know the judge had, was very friendly with everyone. And then at the, end, <laughs> the other party won. So. Um, we felt like we are very stupid clients in that case because we we liked our good lawyer who was not very good in terms of legal advice. You know, but Sergey, but Dave, that's that's a good sign at the very end because it, it shows that this judge was independent. Yeah, yeah, yo, absolutely, like like total trust in that arbitration. Yeah. So so the question for you guys is, uh, I think we're closing in ten minutes or so. Uh, in your experience, what makes a games industry a lawyer valuable? as opposed to a lawyer from a different industry. So you, every year you meet the guys here at the summit and everyone is looking to hire someone. It's a, every year, you know, we're hiring three people, we're hiring two people, whether or not it's a law firm, whether or not it's a game studio. So everyone seems to be short on games industry lawyers. Uh, even CD Projekt uh, participates in the school and war show that is uh, trying to bring more young people into the industry. We do the moot court. Uh, so why? Like, can't you just hire someone from a different industry or just from a general law firm, someone from banking, someone from M&A, whatever? Like, what makes the person with experience valuable? Sure. Yeah, Peter, your, your turn first. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> 
let me maybe partly dodge the question. So uh, the way that we have hired our in-house people has in all cases been based on we worked with them uh, before. Like we have not hired any in-house lawyer uh, just because of their resume and their performance in the, I don't know, uh, energy industry or whatever. Uh, not even if they have an impressive resume at another games company, uh, but only based on personal experience. Uh, not even based on recommendations, but really personal experience as uh, outside counsel or someone that someone on our team had worked with personally in the past. And uh, it's 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 a luxury uh, to to have this kind of bar, but it does give you a very high degree of confidence in who you're dealing with there and will have to uh, interact with for a very big part of your waking time over the years to come. Um, it's it's I, I, I couldn't tell you really a, how should I hire someone out of law school because uh, we haven't really hired any uh, people who just come out of school for quite a while uh, for a good part because we um, don't have a hierarchy and a, and a good setup to bring junior people up to speed and, and guide them. Uh, in our company, everybody is supposed to make their own decisions and any two people can ship something. And so it's it's generally hard for us to, to hire very junior people. But um, I think it really goes back to this this kind of personal experience of this, this overall um, package that you get with a guy, like skills, uh, both soft skills, uh, industry skills, uh, not being the kind of guy who needs a corner office and people report to him and, uh, and a tie uh, that will not fit into your uh, company culture. Like there's, there's this big messy chunk of factors that will uh, determine if someone is a good fit. Yeah, and uh, so I think, so when we hire people for my team, so then, um, my f so it's, it's, it's a several-stage process. So all, they all have pretty good uh, grades. So, but once I have two, three candidates uh, sitting in front of me, my very first question is their um, is their favorite video game. I think I think it's the second question. I think the first question is: Do you recognize the name of any of the heavy metal bands? Yeah, that's the, actually <laughs> that's the that's the second question. So after uh, after the that's the third question. Second question is: What's your favorite uh, thrash metal band? Uh, and the, the third one is: Who is this on the wall? Is this uh, Let Me Kill Mister or Kerry King from Slayer? Anyway, but the first the the, the first question is: um, What's your favorite video game? So if someone says, "Oh, I'm not playing video games at all," then this candidate is usually not um, the right one for, at least for, for, my, uh, for my team. But, um, so why am I asking this question? So as, as a lawyer uh, working in the video games industry, this is one of the few f uh, fields uh, um, or industry areas where a lawyer can really combine um, his or her hobby with the work. So um, lawyers that work in the banking law uh, area or in the real estate uh, law area, they just do corporate work. So. Um, there's no, usually no combination or no link to their uh, private uh, hobbies or um, interests. So as a, as a lawyer in the industry, as I said, it's 
different. You can really work on uh, work with or for the clients uh, whose product products you love a lot. And uh, I'm absolutely convinced uh, because of the, the, the this link, the people who play video games um, in uh, at home have a different passion if it comes to their work, because they are so happy that they can that they can uh, live and work their hobby at the same time. Uh, totally makes. I mean, we had different examples. If you remember uh, from some of the discussions at the summit, where people said, "I don't care about video games. I don't care about films." I don't have to be a film aficionado to do a good work on the film deals. Uh, you know, some people said that's not true. And that was a sort of a discussion. But I follow you that if you love what you do, then you'll be naturally knowledgeable about the area. You'll be able to put everything together into your mind, draw the connections between this and that, pick up a lot of information from the outside, and that will benefit your clients in the end. So my, I guess my last question is, um, Talking about the concept of skin in the game uh, and the fact that, for example, uh, let's say Russia has a, a sort of sizable number of rich people who have British passports, live in London, own uh, their assets outside of Russia, but then make laws about Russia. So it's always fun when the guy who says that the uh, medical system is the best in Russia then goes to Germany to uh, have some surgery. Because apparently in the whole country, there's no hospital that's as good as the one in Munich. Um, or, you know, someone is complaining that they cannot visit their uh, home in Monaco for some time and so on. So they have no skin in the game, basically. You pass a decision on the hospitals for the serfs. And as a member of a different class, you don't care. Like, so whatever, you know. Um, in that sense, if you live in Hamburg and your kids go to school in Hamburg and you vote in Hamburg, you are totally committed because you're not going to move away. So if Hamburg uh, keeps growing and getting better, then you benefit, your kids benefit, everyone benefits and so on. So for Valve, there is the role uh, that you have to convince other people to do stuff or do it yourself. This is why so many people can write code at Valve. You know, if you have a brilliant idea, just go and do it. And if you cannot do it, just find someone who can, but you cannot just get them to do it. You have to convince them. And then if they buy in, then okay. Uh, for a lawyer at a games company or at Valve specifically, uh, do you like, struggle with this? That uh, you cannot, you know, always do, like you cannot code in the sense that they can code if they ship a game. So. Do you struggle with this buy-in from, from non-legal folks explaining to them like, hey guys, you know, let me convince you, <laughs> you know, read this, read that, read this, or is it easier? I think you have to separate two things here. Like if we're looking at um, specific compliance requirements, I think everybody understands these are rules we have to play by and that I don't have to convince people to do the right thing. Uh, another thing is if I want to make I don't know, my work easier, or I want to make uh, a certain process uh, involve less friction. Let me give you an example. I, I want to uh, make it easier for uh, esports organizers to, to set up events and get licenses from us. And it's a, it's a really standardized kind of agreement. Uh, we don't get money from it. Uh, we don't really want to negotiate them. And so I really want to have just this click-through thing where people enter their uh, information and they then and ideally, then out comes the uh, predetermined agreement for them that we just have to execute. Um, 
it's kind of hard for me to convince an engineer to work on that. If at the same time they could do something that affects hundreds of uh, millions of people uh, in the consumer space. So uh, that is something where I have to come up with something that works for myself. And then I say, okay, is there a, a, a solution that even a lawyer can work with? And you have something like, you know, Microsoft Forms and, and Office 365, and that actually does that work. And then I step out of my legal role and have this kind of uh, sort of kind of developer uh, designer thing that I uh, need to uh, force myself through and then get this thing done. If you are in a more hierarchically structured company where uh, there is someone on the legal team who can just give orders to a certain group of engineers to build something, then uh, that would not happen. And, and for you to be as, do you have any buy-in from the team internally? Like, is there a, some responsibility for people who come up with ideas that they have to carry them out? Or it's more of hierarchical and if you're told that this is the project, you do this project? No, if, if someone has a good idea, we, um, we appreciate this and then we discuss it. And, and very, very often um, we implement it. So very, very often. Um, for, for, and, and we, uh, by the way, we, we set up several internal groups for just um, a particular uh, kind of ideas. We have one group here that only cares about how to um, become a little more uh, environmentally friendly. We have one group that says how can we, uh, how can we um, increase or how can we support uh, work-life balance and uh, family at the same time and so on and so on. So I think this is a television. This is no problem at all. At least I, I can only speak for the, I can only speak for the for the German part of television because I do not know how how the other jurisdictions deal with this. But I'm not aware of any um, anything uh, bad in this regard. Okay, fantastic. So so thanks a lot, guys, for uh, giving us your time today. I hope that a lot of your friends from the community will. Uh, listen to your voices and feel transported to, you know, the summit. And and and, and uh, when I talk to you, all I remember is basically every year standing in the queue for lunch, and <laughs> 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 you know, catching up with this and that and that, and you know, like lots of information you pick up, not specifically, not just going in and say hi, what's new, but just you know, bumping into someone and grabbing it and so on. Uh, hopefully we'll see each other. Uh, we'll see how many people make it for the summit. We'll see if it happens in November. You know, we have to move it to next year. We'll see. There are some changes locally as well. Uh, the uh, uh, there are some changes at the Kempinski team. I think the hotel will have a new owner. So uh, it's just one of the consequences of the whole economic change that is happening around. So uh, it'll be fun to see. And um, I hope uh, I hope that. Uh, uh, your friends will uh, send you an email once they hear you and uh, let you know that they've been missing you and uh, hopefully we'll catch up before the end of the year. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ciao. Ciao.